Well, I've got several things I'd like to say to you. Thank you so much for the very positive way you have engaged in this series of studies. Preaching, someone says, is one side of a passionate conversation, but it is a conversation. And you have been part of the conversation. And not all assemblies of God's people are part of the conversation. But you are remarkable in that regard. And I want to tell you thank you again. Thank you for having me back and taking the risk that was involved in it. I hope I've at least done something that's useful and profitable and no harm at all in this study of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. So I commend you to God and to the word of his grace that is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among those that are sanctified. I love this church. And I love each one of you individually. And carry with us, Wilma and I, so many memories of good things. We are loath to leave you. But that's what this world is consistently doing making us part company. But we're going to a place where there's not going to be any more of this. We are such a blessed people. We have such hope. We have such peace. We have such confidence in God because of what he has done for us in his son. Matthew chapter 7. Matthew 7, verse 1 is perhaps the best-known passage in all the Scripture. (coughs) Judge not that you be not judged. This section from verse 1 to verse 6 is a troublesome passage for students of the sermon because it just doesn't seem to fit into the flow of the context. But I believe it has some things to say to... Look back on what he has taught and to give some cautionary warnings. The word judge in English has a wide variety of meanings. It goes all the way from discernment to condemnation. And it has the same in the Greek word. But here the significance, I think, is condemn not, that you be not condemned. It's a warning maybe to some kingdom Pharisees who have understood what Jesus said so very well, and now they're very impatient with the people that don't seem to get it. And they become critics and not helpers. Not everybody gets it as quickly as you do and I do. And that goes for those who are not Christians. But sometimes we think we've always understood what the Bible says. And it's strange to us that other people don't get it as quickly as we think we did. Of course, we're rewriting history just a bit in thinking that we always understood these great truths. I can guarantee you I did not. So sometimes we become critical of others. We're not intending to be helpful, 
It just sort of gives us a lift to be able to straighten somebody else out and help them know how much we know ourselves. But that's what the Lord here is warning against. And very soberly, if you want to be everybody's critic, if it gives you a rush to be talking to people about their own failures to understand the Scripture, be warned. For with what judgment you judge, you shall be judged. And that's an awesome thought. Why do you look, he asked, at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own? There's one thing that will help you in your approach to others when you're trying to help them and correct them. Look at yourself first. That's the advice that Paul gave the elders at Ephesus. Take heed to yourselves and to all the flock of which the Holy Spirit made you bishop. It's the advice Paul gave to Timothy. Take heed to yourself and then to your teaching. So Galatians 6 is so appropriate. If a brother or sister are overtaken in default, you that are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of tenderness. Remember, you have been wrong too. And ask yourself, how would you like people to have approached you when you were wrong? And try to do the same for them. These people need a brother, not a critic. And Jesus is warning here that it needs to be done carefully. First, he says, remove the speck from your own eye. And then you'll be able to clear, see clearly to remove well, not the speck, the blank. I misread that. Remove first the plank in your own eye, then you'll be able to see the speck in your brother's eye. You know all that. You've heard that before. And then he turns to another subject seemingly differently. First it's the hypocrite, and now it's the zealot. Do not give what is holy to the dogs nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under feet, your feet, their feet, and turn and tear you in pieces. All of us have some people we so long to see Christians. Sometimes relatives, sometimes our own children, sometimes friends, associates that we spend a great deal of time with, and we get determined that we're going to somehow get them to turn to Christ. I remember a friend of mine talking about the evangelistic approach that one fellow described for him. He said, I just back them up into a corner and quote scripture to them till their eyes roll back in their head. I don't think that is a commendable approach. But we are so determined. And they are telling us by countless ways, I am not interested in what you've got to say. Their eyes glaze over the minute you bring up the subject. They do not want to speak about it. They don't want to engage about it. But we are determined. They'll lock the door. We'll knock the door down. They'll crawl upstairs and hide under the bed. And we'll get there and start preaching to them. Jesus is warning against that. We're looking for people who are open to the gospel. We're looking for people who would receive the word of God. We're not looking for people who have no interest in it. And when we spend all our time working on people who have made it very clear that at this time at least, we are not interested in what you've got to say. 
you are wasting time that could be spent with people who do care and want to know and learn and understand. So this is a cautionary warning that he gives. And I'm listening. Now we come to another section. Verse 7. Ask and it shall be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it will be opened. This is sometimes read as if it is a guidance for prayer, generally. Whatever it is, it's not, it's not questionable. It happens. He's saying here, ask and you shall receive. Knock and it will be opened to you. Seek and you shall find. So there's no question about the results of your effort to seek and to find. I would be frightened out of my senses if I thought God would answer every prayer I prayed without any question. <laughs> Indeed, I've lived long enough to be grateful for unanswered prayers. We sometimes don't know how to pray as we are. We think we're asking for things unselfishly. We think they are things that would enlarge our ability to serve the Lord. But we just don't know everything. I asked the Lord to let a certain young lady be my wife. I won't tell you how it happened with her, but I was delivered. I was delivered. I asked for stone and the Lord gave me bread. I don't think this is talking about prayer. I think it's referring back to... Chapter 6, verse 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. This is a kingdom that's for the asking. You just have to ask and seek and knock. And it's for everybody. It doesn't take someone who's worthy. It doesn't take someone who deserves. It just takes somebody who wants it, who longs for it, who's seeking it earnestly. And so it's my judgment that that's what's being described here, not some general admonition with regard to prayer. There are other teachings on the subject of prayer, but you can think about that and consider if it is possible to be true. But he goes on to say, Or what man is there among you who, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Luke says, repeating the similar words, he knows how to give the Holy Spirit to those that ask for him. I think that that's the case here. This is a spiritual request. It is a request toward a thing that is the center of the message of the Sermon on the Mount. And so consequently, if you want it, you can have it. You just have to want it. I mean, really. You can't do it casually. The triple statement here, ask and seek and knock, is an, is an indication of the intensity of the request that's being made for what is being asked for. And then he returns suddenly in verse 12. 
Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. The sermon is ended. Now comes the invitation. It's interesting that God, who has absolute power, infinite knowledge, cannot compel one of us to answer this in the way that he wants it answered. Jesus is inviting and entreating, but he cannot compel. He is the son of the living God. He has power unimaginable. But when man was created with a free will, from that day onward, the only way God could move him was to entreat and instruct and teach. So you have the power, and I have the power, to say to God, in spite of all that he does, in spite of all that he has done, I'm not interested, I'm not going to do it. And a lot of people say that. And God keeps on asking and entreating and inviting and appealing for us to choose the right direction. Enter in, he says, by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few that find it. This sermon has been, I mean, the road's been forking all the way through. Two different kinds of righteousness. Two different kinds of devotion and worship of God. And now two different ways, two different gates. And he urges that we enter in by the narrow gate. The narrow gate in this particular illustration is God's sovereign will. And if you enter that gate, you are subjecting yourself to all that God wants from you. And the narrow way is a way of life lived that way. I think we don't instruct as we ought to and help people understand that when you become a Christian, you are saying whatever the Lord wants from you, you have given, you are giving it. Whatever he wills for you, that is your will too. In the language of our Savior, not my will but yours be done is what we are saying when we become Christians. That is a commitment that must be made if we are going to be truly converted. And so he says, enter in by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and, narrow and, wide and broad is the way that leads to destruction and there are many who go in by it. He's telling us, I want you to go into the gate where you will not have as much company. And he goes on to say, it's difficult. He said in the sermon already, if you're going to follow me, there's going to be persecution. There's going to be suffering. And you're going to have to decide this issue on the basis of where each way leads. The broad way is a great way. You never have to ask the question if what you're choosing to do or say or feel is a According to God's will. Never have to ask that question. 
You just do what you want to do and what it pleases you now. And you'll be able to go with people who have that very free attitude. But the unfortunate thing is, it leads to destruction. And this is destruction that is not just small destruction. This is utter and absolute destruction. And the other way may be tough, but it leads to life. When I was studying the Sermon on the Mount and writing articles on it, I was in Kentucky at that time, and there was a mine cave-in that took place. And several men were entombed in the heart of the earth, and their families were all standing around the opening of the mine, desperate with regard to their loved ones. And I thought then, you know, if those men could have found a way out of that mine that was as narrow as conceivable and taken all the hide off as they crawled through it, they would have done it and thank God for the privilege. Because life was on the surface. And that was the crisis. And so life is the issue for us. However difficult the way, however challenging it may be, it leads to life. And the other to destruction. Take the long look. That's the important thing. And make the right choice. Jesus is appealing for his hearers now to make the right choice on the basis of the what, of what way leads to life. But verse 15 tells us that it will not always be easy to recognize the narrow road and the broad one. Because there are some people that will be standing around trying to confuse you on this subject. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. You will know them by their fruits. There are going to be false teachers. Jesus said there were going to be false teachers. Paul said there were going to be false teachers. Peter said there were going to be false teachers. But somehow or another we get the idea that there will be a very wonderful period of time when we don't have any false teachers. And God's people will all be doing right. And we won't have to worry about issues being raised about what's right, what's true, what's false. That has occurred for a very brief time in the city of Jerusalem. And ever since then, there have been false teachers that affect the faith of God's people. Which means we're going to have to be alert on the basis of the knowledge of God's Word to determine whether or not what we're hearing here is that which comes from the Lord. And they won't, when they come, have a wonderful, charming, they'll have a wonderful, charming personality. The devil's smart enough to know that he's not going to bring some aggravating sign of soul in to get you to do the things that are wrong. He will give you someone very appealing. These are false prophets. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 has something to say about how the devil operates when it comes to trying to deceive us about what is right and wrong. Look verse 13 of chapter 11. 
For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ, and no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore it is no great thing for his ministers to transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. They are wolves in sheep's clothing. Winston Churchill once said about his opponent number across the British Parliament, he said he was a sheep in sheep's clothing. I like that. That's what I want to be. But not all people in sheep's clothing are sheep. They don't come to you in an aggravating, obnoxious way. They come with charm and with apparent righteousness and apparent devotion to God. But what they are teaching and the way they are living, they are not concerned about the truth. I like the counsel that one brother gave recently when we were talking about preparing for the eldership. He said, we have to be careful to decide whether we're dealing with a wolf or a wandering sheep. Sometimes we are finding false teachers behind every bush and under every rock. We become paranoid in that way. But we have to be watchful. Jesus said, I'm sending you forth as sheep amid the wolves. Be as wise as serpents and as harmless as doves. We have to be vigilant. And when teaching is being made that is not according to God's word, then we need to resist that. And there will be false teachers. I won't live to see some of them. But I anticipate that about this time, 20 years from now, there will be forces in this culture that are going to be pressing hard upon the churches. The answer to that is to stay well aware of what God's word says. The defense against that which is false is the truth. And secondly, to be committed to that and living according to it. And to be concerned about others having the same opportunity. So we need to beware, as, Paul, as Jesus says here, of false teachers. They're going to come. We are warned again and again about this very fact. So you will know them by their fruits. And he goes on to say in this particular text, that a bad vine cannot bear good fruit. And a good vine will not bear bad fruit. That's an agricultural principle that he's making very clear. Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. They cannot hide their true nature forever. But we need to be careful that the truth is always honored and taught and treated with great reverence among us. And then he illustrates it in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. So beware that there are a lot of people who say, Lord, Lord, 
And by the way, repetition of a word is the Hebrew superlative. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, he asked, and do not the things which I say in Luke 6, 46. But here when he says, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? There's no indication here that the Lord is denying that they did any of these things. No indication that they did not prophesy in his name. Judas cast out demons. There's no indication that they did not cast out demons and no indication that they did not do some wonders in his name. The critical issue is not whether you've done some great things in the name of Jesus, but the critical issue is have you done the will of the Son of God? That's what Jesus is saying, simply put. That's the issue on which the judgment of the Lord will be made. And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So it's possible for people to do a lot of great things and not do the will of God. But sometimes we comfort ourselves by thinking, I've done so many great things. I've sacrificed a lot of things. But the question always is, am I doing the will of God? That is the critical issue and determines whether you walk in the narrow road or the broad one. You don't want to be before the judge at the last great day when everybody who's ever lived is present and come before the judge of the universe and hear him say, depart from me. I never knew you. That will be the worst moment in all of your experience. So consequently, it is necessary that we plan now to do God's will, that it's our aim and our passion to do his will. And the time will come when we're going to stand before the great judge and we want to be ready to meet him at that time. Verse 23 says it will be Jesus who says to them. We know he'll be the one who fulfills the eternal purpose of God. He said that in chapter 5. Now we know that he's going to be the judge at the last. And then the scripture that was read before you. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who has built his house on the rock. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it did not fall for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house and it fell and great was the fall thereof. That's an interesting illustration. When you look at those two men, both of them intended to build a house. And all of us, really, we're trying to build our house. He was going to build a house where he could live, where he could be safe, and where he could find some measure of happiness. Both men had the same intention. And both of them built a house. And there's no indication you could have told any difference whatsoever between those two houses. The only difference that ever existed in this illustration is the foundation. 
But I have to say that the guy that built on the sand would have been looked at as a rather wise fellow because he'd have his house up before the other fellow got his foundation laid. And no great ag- and no great anguished energy demanded. And it has to be said about the foolish man that he didn't think about any possibility of something. Everything's going to continue just like it is. He does not contend, He does not even entertain the possibility of a storm. And his house is up. And the wise man's house is up. And you are not going to be able to tell the difference between these two. And may I say to you, as we look at Christians as opposed to non-Christians, you can't tell the difference easily between the two of them because they all suffer, get sick, die, have accidents, disease. Everything happens to them that happens to those that are not Christians. Is that not true? And so people sometimes say in their foolishness, it doesn't look to me like being a Christian is making any difference in your life. But in interpreting the parable of the tares, Jesus says when the time of final judgment comes, then the children of God will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. Then it will be evident who has won the battle. But it's not evident now. And we're having to decide now, before the deluge, we're having to decide now whether we're building correctly. This is the time we have to decide. And we have to decide that basis, decide that on the basis of faith. That there's going to be a time when this house is going to be tested. And the basis of the basis of the of the di- basis of that difference is whether we obey the word of the Father or the word of the Son, or not. And that's the illustration. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And so it was. When Jesus had ended these sayings, that the people were astonished at his sayings. You know, when the voice of God speaks, you could tell the difference. I wrote some things about that. Matthew does not report the response of the disciples to Jesus' sermon. But the curious multitudes, he says, were astonished. And this would not be the only time that the Lord's listeners would be transfixed and surprised at the unexpected content and manner of his words. Later, some Jewish officers sent to arrest him would make the mistake of pausing to listen. John seven forty six. They had been sent to arrest him, but they stopped to listen And when they came back to their supervisors, they said, why didn't you arrest him? He said, we never heard a man talk like that. He was an offense to people because of his background and his humble nature. But the words that he spoke were compelling. And they were astonished. There's nothing mysterious in all this, I wrote. 
No strange manipulation of the mind, no spells or trances. It is simply the effect of hearing the voice of God and not the influence has on human hearts. Jesus appeared in every way to be ordinary, so, uh, so usual, a common artisan from the religious backwaters of Galilee, wholly without formal training and background. This fact often made his remarkable words unbelievable to his audiences. That was true in Galilee who seemed unwilling to accept his testimony that his teachings came from his father. His words were not accompanied by the kind of fiery display that shook the sons of Sinai and melted the hearts of Israel into terror. It was only a man speaking the absolute unequivocal truth, not simply as one who had learned it, but as one who had experienced it, even as one at last who was identical with it. He was not only teaching the truth, he was the way, the truth, and the life. And this fact alone was bound to give a unique and compelling quality to Jesus' words. He taught them as one having authority. And they were amazed. And we should be amazed as well. But we have to choose. And it's going to be the difference between heaven and hell. Between life and death. And Jesus has set it out in clear language. And we are now challenged to make the choice ourselves. What do you think about that? A radical righteousness that reaches to heart depth. That begins there and issues in a, night, in a life that is totally transformed. A devotion to God that is absolute, unequivocal, total commitment, that is not hypocritical, that is not external, and does not have any concern to be seen by men, but always focused upon God and His will. So we come now to decide if we're going to build on the rock or we're going to build on the sand. I'm astonished at the teaching of Jesus. But it came in a still, small voice that didn't compel us or send us into terror because God does not approach us, approach us that way. He approaches us with an appeal and an invitation to come and do His will. And it's up to us to make a decision about this. So ends the Sermon on the Mount. Now we have the invitation. Are you a Christian? Are you willing to follow the words of this teaching? Realizing that if you do, it leads to what? To life. And that life is not just physical life. This is essential life. This is life... In eternity, this is life with God forever. And that is a sobering decision that we have to make. So I'm asking this audience tonight, are you ready to follow the Jesus who preached this sermon and do His will, knowing that this is the way to eternal peace and happiness and joy? And we're going to sing this invitation hymn about the great physician. And he is that essential. He is able to heal 
the brokenhearted. He is able to care for every single soul among us who has these needs that are transcendent. And so we invite you to come to Jesus tonight as we sing this final invitation hymn.